0: Today's broadcast was originally recorded on April 12th, 2023.
1: Is this a five-alarm fire for the Republicans? A- absolutely. And it, and it is on, on more than just one issue. To me, the larger issue here, we've seen it particularly in Wisconsin, but across the country, is younger voters.
2: Oh, younger voters. Because they don't vote for your party, Scott Walker? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Yep. I got the feeling of something right. Scared in I fall off my chair. Not for Republicans, anyone.
0: And i anyway. I'll get down the stairs.
2: Especially in Wisconsin.
0: Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you.
2: Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, Queso, Eugene's, Oh, Wisconsin, we'll be talking about you. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950K, TNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots uh, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, and Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blackening Planet Earth as best we can. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, and one in which I am actually very excited to have coming up for the first time on this show Yet another guy who was actually right about the 2022 elections as he argued that a red wave was unlikely to happen and as he was largely ignored by the corporate media in the bargain and were even attacked by some uh, for promoting hopium, Desi Doyen.
0: (laughs) Yes, I remember the folks that were bucking the conventional wisdom that was being broadcast across all of the uh, different media outlets that assumed a certain outcome. And And that,
2: by the way, despite this guy's decades, decades uh, as a well-respected political strategist. Anyway, he'll be joining us momentarily. So very quickly, uh, there's a lot going on, but we have spent so much time over the past weeks and months and uh, now years on Dominion voting systems defamation lawsuit against Fox News for falsely claiming that the voting machine company had helped rig the 2020 election against Donald Trump somehow. Now, you might wonder, why have we done so? Why have we spent so much time on this case? Well... Anything having to do with voting machines is definitely obviously in our wheelhouse, especially here where Trump attorney Sidney Powell after the 2020 election bastardized some of my own exclusive reporting on voting systems from more than a decade ago to make her false claims against Dominion regarding Venezuela and dead Hugo Chavez somehow stealing the election for Joe Biden. Also, because election fraud, by any measure, either actual fraud or, yes, fraudulent claims about fraud, has been a staple of our work at both Bradblog.com and on the air for the past, what, 20 years or so.
0: Yes, we kind of focus on that. Kind of,
2: sometimes. But perhaps uh, most critically at this precarious moment in American history, Fox News with the word news in quotes, has become one of the most dangerous institutions in the nation as I see it. Not because of its Republican bent, but because it has become little more than a wildly dangerous propaganda organ for those hoping to replace American democracy with full-on autocracy. And the insidious way in which the right-wing propaganda outlet has insinuated itself into virtually every aspect of American life and politics and the issues that are so important, life or death, existential issues, standing in the way of progress. And progressivism and law and order and rights and freedoms and the Constitution and American democracy itself in a way that I believe is wildly underestimated by the general public. Oh, it's it's just a a, a Republican uh, leaning news channel. It's, you know, the opposite of MSNBC, not by a long shot. I believe it's wildly underestimated how dangerous Fox is by the general public, by millions of whom have been out and out brain poisoned by the fake news outlet, whether they know it or not. I've long warned that uh, that, in fact, poses a unique danger to the entire American experiment, and I believe that we are seeing that play out right now in spades. To that end, these defamation lawsuits filed by private voting system vendors like Dominion for one point six billion Smartmatic for two point seven billion companies that I would usually not be supporting. Those lawsuits pose very real threats to what Fox is, what it has become and to the continuing danger that it represents to our republic as the evidence even so far in Dominion's lawsuit has made crystal clear. So with that in mind, uh, we've got a few related developments in the waning hours before Dominion's case against Fox is set to begin in earnest in court in the next few days, unless Fox suddenly gets smart enough to figure out how to settle this case to prevent what could be a nightmarish trial for them. Fox News said on Sunday that it has reached a settlement with a Venezuelan businessman, a guy by the name of Majed Khalil, ending a defamation case in which Khalil said that he was falsely accused on air of helping to rig the 2020 U.S. presidential election somehow against Donald Trump. Khalil had filed his suit against Fox and former Fox host Lou Dobbs, arguing they had fabricated claims that he and other Venezuelans were somehow involved in, quote, orchestrating a non-existent scheme to rig or fix the election. A short letter sent to U.S. District Judge Louis Stanton in Manhattan on Saturday said the parties had reached a, quote, confidential agreement to resolve this matter. According to Fox in a statement on Sunday, quote, this matter has been resolved amicably. We have no further comment. Which tells me, of course, that Fox just paid a whole bunch of money to this man to settle this case.
0: Yeah, and it took almost three years to do it.
2: Yep. And I suspect they're working very hard to try and figure out how to do the same with that $1.6 billion suit that was filed against them by Dominion. Again, at least if they're smart, that's what they're trying to do. Meanwhile, jury selection is set to begin on Thursday ahead of the Dominion trial against Fox, and Fox News and its parent company, Fox Corp. But Fox has already had a very rough week in court. On Tuesday, the judge in the Dominion case, Judge Eric Davis, ruled that Fox will not be allowed to argue that a broadcast false claims about Dominion because they were newsworthy shutting down what had been a key line of defense for the cable news network. In other words, they were saying, look, it was newsworthy because Donald Trump was claiming that the election was stolen. Sidney Powell was claiming the election was stolen. That was newsworthy. All we were doing was reporting what they were saying.
0: People were saying stuff out loud, and we had to tell you what they said. And
2: not correct the record, even though we knew better. So they're not going to be able to make that case, according to the judge. Also, the judge was angered by a last-minute revelation that... Fox Chair Rupert Murdoch also held an officer position with Fox News. So he's the chairman of Fox Corp. But he also held an officer position with Fox News that they didn't tell the court about. Dominion complained that the failure to disclose Murdoch's role as executive chair at Fox News had adversely impacted its approach to the litigation. The judge said in court in response, quote, "...my problem is that it has been presented to, represented to me more than once that he is not an officer." With the judge suggesting he might have ruled differently on the recent uh, summary judgment ruling. But things got still worse for Fox in court on Wednesday when the judge sanctioned them for withholding evidence before the trial has even begun. Judge Davis announced on Wednesday that he was imposing a sanction on the network and would very likely start an independent third party investigation. Oh boy. Yeah into whether Fox's legal team had lied to the court by withholding evidence, scolding the lawyers for not being, quote, straightforward with him. The rebuke came after lawyers for Dominion revealed a number of instances in which Fox's lawyers had not turned over evidence in a timely manner, including recordings of the Fox host Maria Bartiromo talking with Trump's lawyers Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani which Dominion said had only been turned over to them a week ago. In sanctioning Fox, Judge Davis ruled that if Dominion had to do additional depositions or redo any of those depositions that had already been done, quote, Fox will do everything they can to make the person available, and it will be at a cost to Fox. That's the judge speaking. Ouch. He also said that he would likely appoint a special master to investigate their handling of discovery of documents and whether Fox inappropriately withheld details about Murdoch's role as a corporate officer at Fox News. He he said that he would weigh whether additional sanctions should be placed on Fox, explaining he was very concerned that there had been, quote, misrepresentations to the court. This is very serious, he added.
0: Wow. I mean, that is. I mean, you you just don't do no, that stuff. No,
2: that's the very not good for them. A lawyer for Dominion told the court that they were still receiving relevant documents from Fox, even now with the trial just days away. Quote, we keep on learning more relevant information from individuals other than Fox, she said, and to be honest, we don't really know what to do about that. She also played two recordings for the court of uh, a preliminary conversation before an on-air interview that was done by Bartiromo that she said... Um, were received only after they were revealed in another, a separate legal complaint filed by a woman named Abby Grossberg, a former Fox News producer who worked for both Bartiromo and Tucker Carlson. She's suing the network now related to all of this because they were hoping to throw her under the bus, as she claims, in her suit against Fox, who has now fired her. Another lawyer for Dominion, said that had the information about Rupert being an officer at Fox News been given to them to them earlier, the scope of their discovery of documents would have been much larger and relevant documents could now be missing. Judge Davis expressed concerns that Fox's legal team had not been forthcoming with the information, despite being asked multiple times whether or not Mr. Murdoch was a corporate officer for Fox News. He said, I need people to tell me the truth. And by the way, omission is a lie, unquote. He added, what do I do with attorneys that aren't straightforward with me? That is usually not a good sign from your judge just before your trial for $1.6 billion is set to begin. So uh, that said, There's still one more point of bad news for Fox. For the the moment, there could be more coming in any second at this rate.
0: They're having a very not good day.
2: Like I said, if they were smart, they'd want to be settling right around now. In any event, recall my conversation with Angelo Carasone, the president of Media Matters for America, on this program at the beginning of March. When I had posited that, uh, hey, you know, to him, uh, $1.6 billion is a lot of money, but ultimately for a billionaire like Rupert Murdoch and a multi-billion dollar company like Fox News, which probably has insurance to cover all of this if necessary, that surely losing this case while it would hurt, it wouldn't put them out of business. Now, Angelo Carson knows the uh, business of Fox News as well, really, as uh, any, anyone who's not in it, in that he has been uh, challenging them, running campaigns against their advertisers and so forth for many, many years. So Carson agreed with the general premise that I made at the time, but explained why this lawsuit from Dominion is just one piece of a larger puzzle, that it would prevent their plans for several planned mergers and acquisitions, including another attempt to buy CNN. And it would make it harder uh, to convince cable companies to raise subscription rates this year because Fox News needs more money, because that's how they make their profit from cable subscriptions, because so many advertisers have left them. Uh, But uh, Caroussone also noted this point
3: it's not just going to end at the $1.6 billion. Shareholders themselves will then begin to sue for breach of fiduciary duty Mm. because it's very apparent that the Murdochs made misrepresentations about the nature of this litigation for quite some time, and they're obligated to sort of be honest uh, to some extent with with their shareholders. They did not maximize value here. They clearly were breaching fiduciary duty by not looking around the bend. And the Murdochs themselves actually have a history of losing. Part of the reason that most people don't know that they've been sued a bunch by shareholders Mm -hmm. is that the Murdochs have a sort of this reflex of settling with shareholders very quickly Uh because of the precarious way in which they control the company. They don't actually have enough shares. They only have about 30-ish percent of the stake. So they still have to keep some pretty big players in the sort of happy Mm -hmm. in order to make sure they always have functional control of this property. And so all that to say, losing this is losing a lot of money. It's going to dip into their acquisition capabilities, but more importantly, the significance will have a cascade because it will set them up for additional litigation that will compound the problem. They won't be able to sustain that from a financial perspective. It puts control of the company in jeopardy. So. It's sort of like a Jenga puzzle. Like you know, pulling one block is not going to topple it down, yeah. but it's certainly going to make it a lot more vulnerable to toppling. Um, and this one is a pretty key part of that piece. Just the tiniest little breeze will probably knock the rest of it over. Mm.
2: That was Angelo Carson, the president of Media Matters for America, media watchdog, on this program on the broadcast back in early March. Warning that uh, this suit is just one piece of the puzzle, that shareholders will begin to sue once they see how Fox News has lied about, well, pretty much everything. Well... Like clockwork via NBC News, a Fox Corp shareholder has sued Rupert Murdoch, his son Lachlan and several members of the Fox Corp board of directors, arguing they violated their fiduciary duty to the company when they allowed Fox to broadcast election conspiracy theories. The lawsuit was brought by a single plaintiff, man by the name of Robert Schwartz, and alleges, quote, the board's decision to chase viewers by promoting false stolen election claims has exposed the company to public ridicule and negatively impacted the credibility of Fox News. Did Fox News have credibility? Anyway, I digress. The suit goes on to say, quote, Fox knew from the board on down that Fox News was reporting false and dangerous information about the 2020 presidential election. But Fox was more concerned about short-term ratings and market share than the long-term damages of its failure to tell the truth. The filing uh, goes on and charges that, yes, that has resulted in lost value for the company and lost money for its shareholders just as Angelo Carson had predicted on this show that we would see. Moreover, Bloomberg Law reported recently that several firms are now eyeing similar actions against Fox Corp and their board members. Well, we reported that recently as well, didn't we? You're welcome. Now, let's uh, take a quick break and we will go to someone who actually tells the truth about things like elections and catches crap. For doing so, even when he was right about them, as he was in the run up to the 2022 midterms when he was using hard data to make his case that a red wave was almost certainly not coming. Simon Rosenberg joins us next on that and what is next for pro-democracy Americans and especially young voters who are key to all of this in the wake of last week's stunning Wisconsin Supreme Court election victory and in advance of next year's presidential election. Listen closely as we're likely to tell you stuff that the corporate media won't. At least they won't get around to telling you for a few months or even a few years. As usual. You're welcome. All of that straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast.
2: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No, this is not a segment about driving or freeways or cars, but it is about 55, as my guest joining me shortly will help us all make sense of. But let me start here. When students at the University of Wisconsin at Madison entered one of the lecture halls in the George L. Moss Humanities Building last Tuesday... They found small pieces of paper on their seats. One final reminder note in an elaborate organizing effort that produced a record turnout on college campuses across the Badger State in a state Supreme Court election likely to end the state's ban on abortion. At least if liberal Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protosawitz was victorious, resulting in a progressive majority for the state's high court for the first time in some 15 years. One side of the paper on those students' lecture hall seats that day urged students to vote for Protosewitz, the eventual victor, against far-right Republican former Justice Dan Kelly. But it was the other side, as detailed by Washington Post's Dan Baltz and Dylan Wells today, that underscored the attention to detail and the lengths to which organizers had gone to assure the biggest campus turnout possible. The backside of the paper read, quote, where do I vote today? And it broke down the polling places that uh, dormitory by dormitory, along with instructions on the kinds of ID they needed to bring with them, reminded them that they could register and vote on the same day at the same time. Similar instructions were distributed at other campuses across the state. And by day's end, well, the results were beyond the expectations of the young organizers in Wisconsin, which has been one of the most closely divided battleground states in the nation for the past several decades. In Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for instance, a city with 77 voting wards, the highest turnout was in Ward 20, which covered the upper campus of the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire and its residence halls. A total of 883 votes were cast, and Protasewicz got more than 87 percent of them, according to data from Project 72 Wisconsin, a group focused on young voter uh, young voter turnout in the Supreme Court election, which supported Protasewicz in the race. Now compare those 883 votes in Ward 20 this year to four years earlier during another state Supreme Court election, when turnout in the same ward totaled just 158. People. 158 people four years ago, 883 votes this year. Now, while overall turnout in the ward actually decreased a bit from the 2022 midterm elections, Protosawitz, in this contest, largely only for the uh, Supreme Court Justice last Tuesday, she won a larger share of the votes cast in that ward than incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers did last November. And he skated to what amounts to a landslide by Wisconsin standards these days. He defeated his Republican rival by more than three points. Points. Protosawicz, on the other hand, would go on to win the state last week by a virtually unheard of 11 points, thanks in no small part to the uh, outreach to these young voters who, yes, did show up to vote last week. In a number of University of Wisconsin precincts, turnout was near November's midterms and Democrats were able to increase their vote share. That's the percentage of votes that a candidate receives out of the total votes cast. They were able to increase that share from the 2022 gubernatorial race to this year's Supreme Court election in Madison. Some campus wards turned out in higher uh, percentages than some high performing wards elsewhere in a city which has consistently had high turnout in recent general elections. And this for an election that many college students hadn't even heard about, didn't even know had existed until a few months ago. The focus on the campuses was part of an overall effort that included broader get-out-the-vote activities by the state party and a huge investment in advertising. But Protosiewicz's margins in campus areas exceeded those margins statewide. The performance on the campuses was an indication that past assumptions about young voters, as we have long argued here, may be becoming obsolete. And that when young voters are engaged and they are mobilized, that yes, they can turn out in significant numbers. According to 25-year-old Teddy Landis, the director of Project 72 Wisconsin, the organizing unit focused on the campuses, quote, the students in college today came of age in the 2016 election when people didn't vote and We got Trumpism. They've been hearing this is the most important election of their lives every single election since 2016, and it is true. So when we go to them and say, of "Of course, they'll vote. Really? That's all it takes? Just reaching out with a concerted effort and letting them know when and where and how to vote? Well, that wasn't so hard, was it? Project 72, Wisconsin eventually assembled a paid staff of more than 100 people with organizers on 15 college campuses in the state. By the time the election was won, they had spent close to a million dollars on campus-focused activities, but that's a relatively small sum given the record amount of money for any U.S. judicial election ever that was spent by both sides. Landis said, if you invest in young voters, the returns are incredible. The group had set up tables on campus with bright red tablecloths, with Wisconsin State Supreme Court in bold white letters. The tables were in prominent places. They were there every day outside, even if the as long as the weather was above 35 degrees inside when it wasn't. Landis told The Post organizers have been out there every single day, raining or snowing or hailing. Talking about what is the Wisconsin Supreme Court, what are the issues at stake and why your vote would make a difference. He said that organizers knocked on 40,000 doors in residence halls and student apartment buildings ahead of the election. They put up 500 yard signs in the shape of gavels at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with vote early in giant letters. This generation of young people are primed to participate in the electoral process, said 44 year old Mike Tate, a former state Democratic Party chair. They simply need to know how to do it. In the end, state Democrats flipped the majority on the Wisconsin state Supreme Court at a moment when it's likely to hear cases on that 1849 abortion ban in the state on gerrymandering in one of the most gerrymandered states in the union as well as on voting rights before next year's presidential election and expected attempts, yes, again, by state Republicans to try and employ extraordinary measures to, yes, steal the election if necessary. So, yes, this election and the young voter turnout mattered. And, yes, Republicans knew it as well. As you can hear during this Fox News interview with Wisconsin's disgraced, hard-right former Republican Governor Scott Walker just after last week's Supreme Court Election Day.
1: Is this a five-alarm fire for the Republicans? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is on, on more than just the issue or more than just one issue. To me, the larger issue here, we've seen it particularly in Wisconsin but across the country, is younger voters. In Wisconsin, last fall, we saw about a 40-point margin that younger voters gave to the Democrats running for Senate and governor we saw similar margins in Pennsylvania. We don't yet know the numbers by age, but we do know that Dane County, uh, which is where the University of Wisconsin's flagship campus is at, about 50,000 students are enrolled there. Dane County cast more ballots in the race for the Supreme Court than the largest county in the state, Milwaukee County. And in Dane County, 82% of those votes went for the radical. And so unless we turn (laughs) young people around, and it's not as simple as one campaign ad, or some sort of a coalition. This is years of liberal indoctrination coming home to roost, and we've got to turn it around if we're going to win again. (laughs)
2: Liberal indoctrination. The radical. Janet Protasewicz is anything but radical. In any event, she ended up defeating Dan Kelly... 55.5% to 44.5%. That's a remarkable 11-point margin in a state where elections are routinely decided by no more than two points or so. Which brings us to our guest today, who has, in fact, been writing for the past month or so via his new Substack newsletter about creating a, quote, big conversation in democratic and pro-democracy circles about how to grow the current Democratic coalition from Joe Biden's 51.4% in 2020 to 55% in 2024 and to keep it there for a while. He notes, quote, it may be the only way we're going to get the Republicans to abandon MAGA And become a more traditional center-right party, getting to 55 percent, he argues, will be good for Democrats, of course, but it will also be good for the country, he says, and the long-term future of the Republican Party itself. And he has explained the youth vote. Young voters are critical. To that democracy saving strategy. Simon Rosenberg is a longtime political strategist as well as creator and president of the Washington, D.C. based nonprofit NDN New Policy Institute. As a leading liberal think tank and advocacy organization, he is now the creator and publisher of the new Substack newsletter called Hopium Chronicles with Simon Rosenberg after he helped stir up no small amount of anxiety and fear and even some fury among some in both major political parties and the corporate media last year with his clear, consistent and ultimately proven to be accurate data based argument that Democrats would, in fact, perform much better in the 2022 midterm elections than most in the media and especially the Republican Party had been claiming that they would as their own hopium predictions of a red wave for the GOP last year all but petered out on election day. Much as Rosenberg and yes, even us here on this program had long been, long been arguing that they likely would. Simon Rosenberg, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
4: It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: I've got a uh, lot to discuss with you uh, regarding Wisconsin and youth vote and, and what it all may mean moving forward. But since it's the first time we've had John Simon, uh, you know, we spent no uh, small amount of time last year on the show speaking with your friend Tom Bonnier of the uh, data research firm Target Smart, citing your work in the bargain on this show as... You both had forwarded accurate data-based arguments in support of what would eventually be the GOP red wave that never came. I I was so glad when I found you both because i had been making a similar case since at least May or so of last year when the Dobbs decision was leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court about overturning Roe. But you were making the case, I have since learned, going all the way back to 2021 that uh, Democrats were likely to defy modern history uh, by being competitive in a midterm election, even with a Democrat in the White House. So I rather enjoyed the sturm and drang you caused uh, for many in the media (laughs) and the lazy political prediction industry in the bargain. What was your first tip-off that uh, Dems would outperform expectations? And uh, what did you encounter from the mainstream media last year that you had not uh, previously in your decades at yeah. this point of strategizing
4: yeah so I, I think the the basic orientation and first of all i'd love your introduction and i'm anxious to talk about the, the youth vote in wisconsin but the what happened in 2021 was that republicans did an unusual thing which is usually when you two you lose two elections in a row mm-hmm. party then runs away from the politics that just failed rather than run towards it and mm-hmm. the republicans made a choice uh... even after the insurrection on January six, to run towards Maga, a politics that had just been rejected in overwhelming numbers in two consecutive elections. They'd lost the presidency, the Senate, the House. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so what I in my head and in, in the and the writing I did, I believed that that big strategic error mm-hmm. was making it less likely that they would be able to take advantage of a typical midterm dynamic. And by, Late October of 2021, we actually had data backing that up. Mm -hmm. We had seen Joe Biden's approval rating come way down, 15 to 20 points Mm -hmm. since the summer. And the question of uh, what we call the congressional generic, which is a simple question, which is, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican for Congress, didn't change. Mm -hmm. And usually those two things track together. And so I wrote my first analysis piece saying, hey, there's something unusual going on with the data. Mm-hmm. There's an explanation for it, which is that people may be disappointed in Joe Biden but have no interest in voting Republican because they had just voted against MAGA twice and they were getting MAGA all over again. Yep. And for that basic dynamic is what happened in the election, uh, which is that you know, there is an anti-MAGA majority in the country now. It's particularly acute for the Republicans in the battleground states where we've had three consecutive elections where we've litigated MAGA, and all three of those elections have been disappointing ones for Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so we enter into 2024 cycle with the same dynamic repeating, which is this has now been a politics that's failed for them three times. And between Trump and DeSantis, they clearly are running towards, you know, they're going to present themselves as, you know, super MAGA, MAGA on uh-huh. steroids, you know, in this next election, yep. giving us a real opportunity, I think, to claim political real estate that they're abandoning in their extremism
2: and and that argument made uh, sense certainly when you raised it in 21 and then into 22 and then we got more data uh, to sort of support that theory and yet uh, it was as if the mainstream media did not want to talk about what you were seeing even though it wasn't you know predictions based on your feelings it was there was hard data to support it. They didn't seem to want to talk about it for a while, and I think that has something to do with yeah. the name of your newsletter, Hopium Chronicles. Uh, wh- where does that come from, and, and what was that experience like?
4: Well, I was accused of, of being a, a hopium purveyor, a hopium addict, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and which it, to me was, it was a derogatory term, mm-hmm. which I've sort of embraced because I think hopium really represents, to me, the way I use it. It's the power of willing something to be true that may not have been true otherwise. I mean, I think that the Democratic Party and the millions of people that gave money and volunteered last cycle willed something to be true that would not have been true otherwise, which is mm. that we made the election through our hard work and our good candidates, and the money we raised, and the calls we made, and the postcards we wrote. We turned an election that should have been a bad one into a good one. And so hopium to me is, is not hope. It's it's hope with a plan. Mm-hmm. It's hope with an execution. It's hope of knowing that you actually can change the future if you decide to put your mind to it. and And part of the reason I used it is that i was it was used in a derogatory term uh, towards me, yeah. as being sort of delusional, right? had a conspiracy theorist, all <laughs> yes. the things I was called by very prominent people, including Nate Silver, used yep. it in the week before the election. And I was disappointed as somebody who's been in this business for a long time and know all these people. I was disappointed in the way that our analysis, which was very fact-based, shared regularly on Twitter. I mean, I had, you know, 100 million Twitter views in the last three weeks of the election. You know, that it was dismissed so out of hand as if we were being, you know, as if somebody who's been in the business for 30 years and it's kind of a solid figure had just gotten gone crazy (laughs) And in fact, you know, we didn't. Tom and I worked together, and Mm -hmm. we presented a very powerful case. And we, thank God we ended up being right uh, for the country and for (laughs) the Democratic Party. Um, But the media really did have a major failure. And as you pointed out, you know, there's been no recrimination. There's been virtually no discussion about the the, the massive, you know, the, the sort of universal failure to understand the political dynamics in this last election. And I think it's why, you know, my view is today, they may, there may not be recrimination, but I think there is starting to be an understanding that this basic political dynamic that we're describing, that Republicans have gone too crazy, Democrats are kind of a normie and good and accomplished party, which is sort of the argument I've been making. Mm-hmm. that you're starting to see that play out now in analysis and commentary by some of the people who were most accusatory of me, right? Meaning that this notion that the Republicans really just may be too crazy to be, to be a competitive national party, is something that's being much more openly discussed than it was last cycle. And I, and I think that's a breakthrough. Right? I mean, I think that to believe a red wave was coming, you had to believe, you had to normalize their extremism. You mm-hmm. had to sort of look at them and say, oh, they're not as crazy as you know, the Democrats say they were. But of course they were as crazy as we were you, saying you, they were. And voters were with us, even if the media in D.C. wasn't. And so this basic dynamic that we're a good party, that's made things better for people, And that they're a little bit too crazy is the dynamic that drove this last election. And it's going to it appears that it may drive this next one as well.
2: Yeah. You also had to ignore, uh, as you had pointed out, that the Republicans had actually figured out how to game the polling averages of guys like Nate Silver by dumping all of these. Sort of right wing uh, polls into those uh, uh, those averages at the very end of the race to make it appear that, uh, you know, Trump was doing better than he actually was. You had to ignore Tom Bonner's data finding that, you know, turnout was way up among women, young women, Democrats and so forth. It was just it was a very strange uh, thing to watch, uh, to watch it play out. Uh, It it just seemed to be counter to what the hard evidence actually was. uh, To that end, let's get to uh, discuss your uh, Get to 55 effort that you've been working on uh, largely uh, since the creation of your newsletter uh, last month, I think. I, yep. I was I was sort of stunned to learn that as you explained, back in 2007, before Obama built his coalition, you wrote, quote, Democrats had not broken fifty percent in a presidential election since 1976. They had not gotten over 50.1% since 1964. But now the Democrats have broken 50 percent in three of the uh, past four presidential elections since 2007. They've averaged 50.9 over those uh, four elections to the GOP's 46.5 yep. uh, percent. I guess other than that one election in 2016, Democrats have been doing very well. So how does getting to 55 percent in presidential elections actually change things as you see it beyond winning the white house
4: so from 1992 to 2004 we averaged 47 percent of the vote over those four elections Mm -hmm. and in the 2005 and 2006 cycle we and others you know identified argued that there was a new coalition emerging for the democratic party that the combination of millennials and Hispanics sort of growing to a portion of the electorate where they're becoming very meaningful meant that the Democrats could lean into a new coalition that could grow our vote. Mm-hmm. So, And we did that. Um, it happened in the 2006 cycle. We had very high showings with both millennials and Hispanics. We reversed some of the gains that Bush had made in 2004. Mm-hmm. And then Obama you know, leaned very heavily into this new coalition in 2008, got all the way up to 53% of the vote, the best showing for a Democrat since 1964. And since then, uh, since that 2006-2008 cycle, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, we've averaged 51%. So we jumped four points through mm-hmm. strategy. It wasn't an accident. Right? There was an, there was analysis and data looked at and demographic research done, and we grew our vote to a point where we're, we have performed as well in the last four elections. The last time we did this well over four elections was in the 19- uh, 30s and 40s right with fdr we mm-hmm. are now at a higher point 51 percent of the vote we're a majority party mm-hmm. you know we are the majority party as you pointed out we're getting about five points higher in national elections than republicans now over a, a, a sustained period of time mm-hmm. so what i'm positing is that you know we've done this once before we figured out how to look at demography and, and geographic opportunities to grow our vote by four points and I think we need to do it again now. And part of what drove the last jump was the failure of a Republican, the Republican Party. Bush's presidency was seen as failed. It created an enormous opportunity for us to reach people that may have not been reachable. Mm-hmm. We're in a very similar place now. The Republican Party looks uglier today than it's probably looked in our lifetime. Yep. And I think it gives us an opportunity with a variety of groups to grow our vote, to get to 55, and to really have this next election not be something that is so close that... You know, we're all having that fear that if something goes wrong, that we lose our democracy, Yeah, but that where we get such a big number and we reclaim both demographic and geographic space, that we really crush MAGA, not just beat them, and hopefully that will start to loosen the grip of MAGA on the Republican Party, which is something that, as you pointed out earlier... Is not just good for Democrats, but it's frankly good for Republicans yeah. and for the country. Yeah. And so I think we have that opportunity. It's like a man on the moon thing, right? Like I'm, what I'm arguing now is we can get to the moon. I'm not exactly sure how we get there. <laughs> um, and, but I think we can get there because we've done it before. I mean, I lay out in my memo, which is on my sub stack if everybody mm-hmm. wants to go read it.
2: I would link to it. It's
4: free to go look at, right, is that my memo I lay out, there are four groups we should be focusing on initially, and there could be more. Young people, uh, Hispanics, we've lost a little ground, we've got to reclaim it. Never Trump or never MAGAs, right? There's still a lot of Republicans that just aren't going to vote for a MAGA. I think we have to do more work to bring them into our coalition. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think there are opportunities around abortion, both with men and women, that we are still not, we still have to explore. Now, obviously, there's enormous overlap in those four groups, but these are four strategies. And I was asked yesterday by a prominent Strategist, you know, which one do you think is the most important? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we have to go experiment and try with all four of these groups and see how far we don't know. I mean, if all four produce, right? uh-huh. if we can pick up one point nationally in each group, you know, we're up at 55, 56. And what is important to me about this argument I've been making is that what was the number that Janet Protasewicz got in Wisconsin? She got 55, yep. right? and and Wisconsin was one of those states in 2022 where we didn't do as well as we hoped. We got up to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 54% in New Hampshire. So we already in a, what was supposed to be a bad year for us, were able to get up in the mid to high 50s mm-hmm. in critical battleground states. I think we have to have the aspiration to do that, you know, across the whole country. And I think if I can just say two things. The last thing is one is the most important thing I think we can do this year is launch a national voter registration drive with young people. You made the case. I don't have to do it any better than you did earlier about the opportunity we have with young people. The second thing though your listeners should be aware of is there is a major election in May in Jacksonville, Florida. It's the largest city in Florida. We, our candidate's ahead there by eight points in the polls. Mm-hmm. She needs money. She needs volunteers to drive the Democratic vote there. It's an off-year election. A weird date, right May sixteenth. Harder to get our voters out. If we can win in Wisconsin and then have another win in the state where Ron DeSantis and and Donald Trump is from in the largest state city and in Florida, it will be it will keep our momentum going. And so there is after Wisconsin. Now there's another thing I think the whole family needs to be focusing on which is winning in Jacksonville and continuing to win where we can to grow our our support both geographically and demographically as we head
0: into 20 20-
2: You spoke about uh, the importance of the young uh, voters, and and I'm running short on time because I kind of want to say, well, what took Democrats so long to figure out that, you know, you need to focus on young voters? But let me uh, I'm also struck by your arguments uh, at Hopium, uh, which sort of regularly cite the never Trumpers as also key to this strategy on its face. That's likely to not, uh, you know, make a lot of progressives happy. It doesn't a coalition with, you know, died in the wool, hard right Republicans like Bill Kristol and Liz Cheney, for crying out loud. Doesn't that end up watering down the progressive and liberal movements? And isn't that the sort of middle of the road, left of center Democratic policies that got Democrats into so much trouble and arguably created Donald Trump in the first place?
4: No, I don't I don't see it that way. I mean we need we need listen, there are a lot of Republicans who've been voting with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to acknowledge that they're now part of our coalition. The coalition is a big tent right? And part of our if we want to get to fifty five, you know, we gotta get there in every way possible. And in my view, you know, Liz Cheney and Bill Crystal and the other never Trumpers played a really important role in this last election. I mean, there were prominent groups of Republicans in Michigan, in Nevada, and Arizona who publicly endorsed our candidates who openly worked against Republicans. There's no question that that Never Trumper movement was critical to our success in 2022. Mm. And so we can stay true to ourselves and true mm. to our values and also invite them into our coalition, you know, in this temporary arrangement that we need to beat MAGA. This isn't a permanent thing. I don't expect Bill Crystal and I to be on the same team, <laughs> you know, 10 years from now, but now they are. Liz mm-hmm. is on our side. She campaigned for Democratic candidates. And we've got to take their efforts because it expands our coalition. It creates a permission structure for other Republicans. Because remember, if you're a Republican who isn't like MAGA, you have a couple options, right? You can hold your nose and vote for Republicans. You can stay home, or you can vote for the Democrats, right? What do we want? We want them to vote for us. expands our coalition and dries up votes mm-hmm. for the Republicans. And so I think we can do both. I don't think it's a choice. I think we have to. In this moment of national crisis, you know, we have to leave it all on the playing field and do everything we can to make sure that we not just defeat MAGA, but crush them in 2024.
2: Yeah, you write about, uh, you know, giving the threat of MAGA, we we need to imagine and build an even bigger coalition, one that gets us to 55 percent and maybe the only way to truly ensure that freedom and democracy And as a longtime democracy champion who kind of sees democracy right now more in peril than I've seen it, at least in my lifetime, well, that certainly got my notice. But, you know, the question of what do you need to do to shore up democracy? And do you end up compromising progressive ideals in the bargain? I don't actually think you need to. I think popular progressive ideals would win the day and actually strengthen American democracy. Is is that your thinking about that? The more uh, coattails there are, at a, you know, if you have a president at fifty five percent, there's going to be a lot of Democratic progressive coattails that you'll actually end up winning over a lot of those people with these more progressive ideas. Listen, there's
4: there's no question that if you know we now have three or four elections in a row where a former Republican has voted Democrat, then the chance of them us keeping them as Democrats increases dramatically, right? And so there's a, there's a pragmatism in what i'm saying here mm-hmm. and that you know i don't think any of us want to keep having every two years the sense that if we stumble or our candidate doesn't perform well that our democracy can be lost mm-hmm. and we need to change that and and i think one of the ways we change it is by you know welcoming in a far more formal way the never trump or never maga movement into our family remember that the vote Gretchen Whitmer got to 55 <laughs> And Josh Shapiro got up to 57 by getting a lot of Republican votes, Mm -hmm. right? There were a lot of Republicans that voted for them. Josh Shapiro had a huge number of prominent Republicans working for him in his election. And we want that. And I think the abortion issue is also creating an opportunity for us to win over Republican women or Republican-leaning women, in particular, who are just horrified at what's happened to their party. And the key is we can stay true to our values while being welcoming to people that used to be on the other team. We can do that. We're agile enough and frankly I think we have to. I don't think we really have any choice. It mm. doesn't mean we have to compromise who we are, but we can be true to who we are while also be welcoming to a fellow traveler who may be mm. sitting at our dinner table for a couple of years, but for now we need them and we've got to figure out how to work together in my view. But that's only a piece of this new coalition, right? I mean to mm. me the area of greatest opportunity is by driving the youth vote to the roof. Um, in yeah. the next two years. And, but it's also something we've never really done. And so I don't want to, as a strategist, count on us achieving something that we haven't been able to do before. Yeah. I think that my simple admonition to our family is this, is that the people who are most Democratic are voting the least. Mm-hmm. You know, we should change that. And we have to stop blaming young people for not voting. The reason they're not yes. voting more, well, that's powerful. It's <laughs> yes. not their fault.
2: Thank right. you. And I think the, the, uh, the folks in, in Wisconsin laid out a pretty good roadmap for exactly how to do that. Uh, Sure did. Last question. I've only got about 30 seconds, but I think it's a related issue. How important, Simon Rosenberg, is uh, to to democracy itself? Is it to get voters into the habit of voting when they are young? Do we have any data on that as far as how likely they become regular voters?
4: Yeah, I mean, the earlier somebody starts to vote, the, the quicker they become a regular, routine voter. And, so the idea that so many people, you know, one of the groups that I've met along the way is this group's called the Civic Center, and you should have them on, who are focusing on doing a national voter registration drive in high schools, because mm-hmm. 35 states allow you to register early, uh, you know, long before you're 18. Many mm-hmm. states, like here in the district where mm-hmm. I live, you can register when you're 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And so, there's, so this is, I think, a change in mindset, right? It's, it's a go on offense expand the coalition. It's not about repositioning. It's not about playing defense. It's how do we take control of our destiny as a party? I think the tools are there, and let uh, the opportunity is there. We need to seize it
2: fascinating conversation Simon we will uh, hope to have you back uh, so you can read all the tea leaves and tell us what's going to happen next year (laughs) soon Simon Rosenberg his work can be found on uh, Substack at the Hopium Chronicles you can get there by going to simonwdc.substack.com and you can and should follow him on the Twitters at simonwdc Simon Rosenberg really appreciate you joining us uh, on the broadcast today thank you sir thanks so much for the opportunity you bet Okay, fascinating guy. I have uh, been following his work for so long, yes. and uh, first chance we finally had to bring him on the air. I know Delighted he's about that. he's very
0: clear, and, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 discusses these. Concepts in very accessible ways, especially the idea about how outreach and engagement can make such a such a difference. And also, I think with the realization that appears to be dawning among many in the Republican Party that their their problem with the youth voters that you know mm-hmm. are indoctrinated because they actually
2: indoctrinated
0: understand uh-huh. what the Republican Party's actual policies are. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to watch out for Republicans in every single state, especially states that they control to pull out every single voter suppression trick in the book that they can to make it even harder for young people to vote.
2: Which they have been doing for years every yeah, time but they're they try double to
0: down they're gonna oh, make up course, new stuff
2: of course of course but wherever they can you know shut down make it harder for students to vote argue even though the Supreme Court said that students can vote in their uh, you know where they go to school there's they still try to pass laws to prevent those students from voting they shut down polling places yep. on campuses uh, so that's one side of it and that's why I say you know this is not to me anyway this is not a partisan issue. This is not about Democrats this is about democracy. The fact that on one side of the issue you've got people trying to prevent legal voters from voting and on the other side of the issue you have try- you have people trying to help them exercise their ability to vote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, apparently in Wisconsin, what it takes is just talking to people about the issues, talking to young voters and telling them exactly. You live in this dorm. Here's where you need to go to vote. Here's what you need to bring with you and paying attention to that. And, and you know, w- working those groups, whether they're young voters, Hispanic voters, black voters, white voters, women voters, uh, older voters, younger voters, paying attention and helping everyone commit an act of democracy versus uh, what the Republicans are doing is trying to prevent them. You heard it's a five alarm fire, (laughs) according to uh, former uh, failed Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, that young people are voting. That should be a celebration, not a five alarm fire. Anyway, we got to get out. My thanks again uh, to our guest today, Simon Rosenberg, to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or you want to share it, listen to it again, give it to someone you love or hate, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. No paywall. All made possible by the support of listeners like you at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. In advance. All right, you can drop me an email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com on the Facebooks and Twitters and Mastodons. I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Till we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> listening to the broadcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who
3: stop by bradblog.com/donate.